0: Ikon لنجرة كساتي on هيل أفصار haj ديك دقر
1: Welcome to ConLarry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Down the road away is William Annis. Howdy. And over in Maine, we have Mike Lentine. Hello. How are you guys doing today? It looks like we're finally getting some snow melting.
0: <laughs> yes. It's a lovely sunny day out here.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, well, we'll see how that progresses. But, a few things, uh i uh, uh, i wanted to say like at the, at the beginning so uh last last month i think i had i ran a short that was or well last month as we're recording it would be like a couple months ago for listeners i ran a short that was just me talking to um David Peterson and uh christoph grancierkovwitz about the the sort of the change of the guard at the lcs uh i would just want to say, I have like an hour of us talking after that recording that may end up being an episode at some point. So (laughs) watch out for that. Uh, We went on like a giant theory tangent that might be useful. So (laughs) anyway, but that's not what we're talking about today. What we are talking about today is non-concatenative morphology. Now, first off, I kind of want to put out a basic explanation, particularly for people who are like beginners who might not have heard this term before. So non-concatenative morphology, what do I mean by that? So if you look in that, we look at concatenate, that means chaining things together. So concatenative morphology would be your traditional sort of roots and affixes sort of thing you are putting elements together in a chain or in a in if you if you like or just in a string to create meaning uh to create the morphological meaning so non concatenative morphology is morphology that doesn't follow that rule it's not it's not putting things together in a linear string it's you insert things in or you change something in the stem something uh things of that nature. And uh, we're going to go through several different examples of this. And uh, hopefully we can, we can give some people some inspiration to break out of the idea that a lot of sort of beginning conlangers do is create just like an agglutinating language that's totally linear and concatenating and doesn't have much like STEM changes or anything like that.
2: One thing I wanted to mention is Wow. Non-concatenative morphology. What a great phrase. But I don't want people to get too magical about this, right? It's not like Mm non-concatenative morphology is, you know, special or better than that sort of boring mainstream bourgeois concatenative morphology. Everything that's non-concatenative now, I think I can say safely, started out its life as normal concatenative morphology that was then run through historical sound changes, accent shifts, Normal kinds of sound changes. Um, those triconsonantal roots about Arabic we'll be talking about started off their light as by bi- life as biconsonantal roots with things added. So everything started off probably many things. Most things started off concatenative and then other phonological processes did their work over millennia and you get things like the mind boggling complexity of Arabic broken plurals. Well, yeah.
1: yeah. And you, you, you almost certainly can derive any of these things historically whether whether or not things started out concatenative. i think i agree with you that you know most of these things even to where any even if we find places where we go back far in history and we can't find where they came from concatenatively they probably started off that way but yes and we'll talk I, I'll talk. A, we'll talk a little bit about how you can get some of these things historically. And the, the other thing that we might point out just at the start, um, William, you you have this thing: do not become entranced by tricontinental roots. I don't know what you meant by that, but what I get from it is like don't make a language with morphology that's entirely non. Unconcatenative, especially not languages entirely the the triconsonantal roots, because there are prefixes and suffixes, and even like yeah. some infixing in uh, in Semitic languages.
2: Yes, absolutely. Just lots and lots of the normal mm-hmm. morphology. In fact, most of the weirdness of the usual conjugations of Arabic and um, especially Hebrew verbs are just. You know, a, a little bit of non-concatenative stuff determining the root and then normal prefixes and suffixes or combinations of those and just this, the usual phonological rules about accents and, you know, vowel elision and so forth running forward. Um, right. So that's just normal. You know, you learn a normal Arabic verb and there's not a whole lot non-concatenative going on. There's some, um, but it's not nearly as much as you might think. Also, uh, you know, Triconsonantal roots were I think at this point it's pretty much clear that they started off their life as simply two consonant roots, to which various um things were added to refine the meanings in various ways. Um if you run through an Arabic or Hebrew uh-huh. dictionary, you'll notice families of words that share consonants. Um you right. can look at other members of the gigantic Afro Asiatic family where you know there's nothing like these triconsonantal roots. So those started off their life as something much simpler. Um, and then over time yeah. became what we call now tricontinental. If you are aiming at naturalism, you should start with something simpler and produce something that creates a natural triconsonantal system rather than starting off with just picking random three consonant clusters and saying this means sleep and this means
1: buy and this means toaster and so on. It's not very natural
2: if you're aiming yeah. for naturalism.
1: Well, 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 let's start out with something. Let's, let's sort of start going through and let's not go straight into what triconsonantal roots are. I okay. want to start actually with processes of ablaut and umlaut, okay. the just vowel stem changes. You see this even in English, you have historical ablaut and umlaut processes with, you know, take, took, foot, feet, that sort of things where you just have foot a vowel. Feet. Foot, feet
2: is not ablaut.
1: Foot, feet is umlaut.
2: Foot, feet is umlaut.
1: Right. But. <laughs> yeah. It's umlaut that, so my understanding is that historically there was a suffix, a plural suffix there that triggered umlaut. Yes. So that foe becomes, became fate. Um, and then, and then afterward the suffix disappeared and that trace with the umlaut remained. Yep. Which is a lot of, a lot of how you can get the, um, the, the uh, um, non-concaptive morphology happening, particularly sort of stem change sort of things, is you had an affix somewhere and that triggered a phonological change. Then the affix got dropped and the phonological change remained there because, I don't know, speakers still knew it and it, and it, re- and it stuck. Yeah. Probably mm-hmm. more common on very, very common words. That's, that's uh, likely why, you know, A lot of the irregular plurals in English are very, very common wood words. Yeah. Uh, so.
2: Right. So umlaut is an important, um, term to explain. Umlaut is when a vowel changes its location in that nice little vowel triangle or vowel rhombus or whatever the hell that is. Um, due to the influence of a following vowel in the next syllable, it's a lot like almost nearly kind of vowel harmony
1: right and it's at at least in germanic languages like english english it's usually describing moving from back to front yep uh i don't know if people use that to describe other kinds of vowel changes but so like foot uh, and
2: feet that is a fronting right um right was caused by the presence of a letter i a sound e sound afterwards um uh, other Germanic languages also have ah, yeah, a umlauts and u umlauts, um, mm. which mm-hmm. gives you the horrible mess of Icelandic noun declensions. <laughs> <laughs> because the date of plural right. has a u sound, and so that um, causes vowels to move in funny ways. And um, a umlaut in uh, Old English causes some, some fun things as well. So and the point is, is should, it's should, kind of vowel harmony, right? It's where the vowel in one syllable is moved to get a little bit closer to the same place on that chart as, um, the vowel in the following syllable.
1: And we should point out that English, English is not a great example of umlaut as, as opposed to like German, because, uh, English umlaut is entirely historical. There's no, yeah. there's no productive process of umlaut occurring in modern English. Right. So men, so, men. Yeah. That you you can see the mouse. traces of the history. Yeah. 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 Um. But ablaut, I don't. Know, I'm not sure exactly how to explain ablaut. Ablaut is more. It mentions more, tricky, it in, or, uh, more complicated. It
0: mentions in that uh, the um the Wikipedia article where it mentions ablaut versus zoomlaut. It says um that ablaut is a process that dates back to PIE times. Occurs in all Indo-European languages and. They're phonologically unpredictable vowel alternations of a specific nature. So it's usually an altern- a variation between O and E and no vowel, although various ones can result in different other languages having different changes. But umlaut, like William was saying, it's a process particular to Germanic languages between back and front vowels, and it's really predictable.
2: Right, right. So, so and uh, the, mm-hmm. ablaut is kind of funky. Um in the in- the Proto-Indo-European situation, you had um what were called grades. Vowel grades you had zero grade where there's no vowel at all um, one good example of that in English is helicopter um, Helico means helix and PT <laughs> um, is related to the word for fly mm-hmm. and in that particular um, situation the there's no vowel between the p and the T um, mm-hmm. whereas you had also an e grade I'm trying to think there's some dinosaur names that have um well I can't remember offhand See, I shouldn't use fly as an example. Anyway, you had zero grade, E grade, and O grade in Proto-Indo-European. That was it. Those were your choices. No vowel at all, mm. um, an O or an E. Now, that sounds very simple, but you had things like um, Y and W sounds that formed diphthongs in some circumstances and formed um, uh, simple vowels in other situations. So, in ancient Greek... Um, the verb, uh, to leave. Uh huh. Not to leave. Anyway, leipo, l-e-i-p-o, leipo, is the present, but in the aorist is leap, l-i-p, and in the perfective, the stem became loip. Right. So. Now,
1: um. The point is that's yeah.
2: very simple and transparent in Proto-Indo-European, yeah. or it looks that way in, <laughs> somehow magically, reconstructions look very regular. Um. In Greek, it's somewhat predictable for certain kinds of stems, but as, hist- again, phonological processes take their toll, you get the insanity of English where, or any of the Germanic languages where you have five, six, seven verb classes with different kinds of vowel changes. Right, write, right, sit, sat, um,
1: uh, and so on and so forth.
0: Uh, Is that also what's... Like bring brought? Exactly. Or, um... Exactly.
1: Yeah, and there's uh, swim, swam, swum. And there's other evidence of this. I don't know this offhand, but I, I, I don't know the examples offhand, but there's also examples of us, like, having lexical distinctions that date back to, uh, PIE, ablaut. Right. So, ablaut is sort of a less, like, easily phonologically defined process as something like um umlaut.
2: Yeah, it's harder to Um, see what led to that.
1: But, you get the idea is that you can have sort of a conditioned phonological change that just becomes, uh, a standard sort of stem variation. Yep. So and, uh. One of
2: my favorite examples is in ancient Greek, in just Homer, not other kinds of Greek, but in Homeric Greek, there are a few verbs where uh-huh. different genders of participles have different ablout stems. <laughs> Okay. So that's the sort of thing ablaut can be used for different verb stems for different tenses or aspects for, um, different sort of noun and adjective derivational processes and even certain grammatical forms. You might get, you know, the nominative has the E grade and the genitive has the O grade. You know, I, I mean, I don't think that actually ever happened in any particular language, but that's an example of the sort of thing that could happen, um, with ablauting. Um, yes. In there are a small number of Native American languages that have um, various kinds of ablaut as well. And once again, these are internal vowel changes that very often have to do with verbs or what happens to a noun when it is incorporated into a compound.
1: Mm-hmm. And like I think one thing you can do if you're deriving these things historically is you can have you can sort of. Work it so that you end up with. Don't copy what what English has in terms of strong strong verbs, but you can have that sort of idea of having different classes of verbs or nouns or whatever that have that because of the historical sound changes you go through. You end up with these these ablaut forms, but not all of the. You know, it's like a class of verbs right. inflects this way. Not yeah. all of them. But, you know, it's, it's potentially possible you could have all of them. It would, you'd have, probably have to have a thoroughgoing, um, vowel harmony system for them to be all changing in that same way. Yeah. Um, so, since moving on from the, the, the sort of, these sort of, um, stem changes, the sort of ultimate stem change is what we've been, t- we were talking about before is the, the Semitic triconsonantal roots, which is basically, you know, you have these roots, which are defined as three consonants and, uh, Wikipedia calls it transfixes. I'm not, I'm not sure. Cause I've they, never go that they go throughout, they
2: go throughout the thing. That's not a terrible.
1: Yeah, it's it's an it's it's a an interesting term. It's, I've never heard it. Uh, it. You also hear it called root and pattern morphology. Sure. Uh, but basically, what is going on is you have a, some sort of pattern, and you have the the three consonants map onto that pattern, and you also have certain vowels uh, mapping onto the pattern. And it's not as we said before. It's not necessarily, you know, consonant and vowels form your entire, your entire morphological system or even your entire inflectional system. There's often, uh, prefixes and suffixes attached onto that. Right.
2: So I can give a few examples of Arabic because I happen to have those in my brain. Um, mm-hmm. the word for, uh, the consonants K, T, and B, always in that order, mm-hmm. um, has to do with writing in a number mm-hmm. of Semitic languages. Um, so that the word for book is kitab. Um, the third person masculine perfective is katebe. Um, the plural of book. So the singular is kitab. The plural is kutub. So what's happening is vowels are changing in the middle. Um, but you can get prefixes and suffixes as well. So that the ber- word for boy is walad and the plural is aulad. So. What's uh-huh. happened is the W has become part of a diphthong because the mm-hmm. vowel sound is prefixed. Um So my favorite example of this being borrowed is that the English word film, hey, huh. it's got three consonants. It doesn't mean something else. So that the plural of film in Arabic is aflam.
1: Yes. I so believe that, you've, you've brought
0: I that have, up, I before. Brought it up
2: before. But it's so cute. It deserves mention again.
0: I thought they also did something like that with telephone. They use a TLF. Um, oh, that sounds fun. um
1: i don't know if arabic did that i believe modern hebrew does that does something with telephone
2: yeah he- hebrew is nicer though it doesn't have what w- these plurals we've been calling that i've been giving you the examples of are what's called broken plurals which is funny because they're the most common kind of plural in the language there is a regular so-called plural um, but it's not the most common one hebrew on the other hand mostly sticks with regular predictable plural forms um, apart from your usual bevy of exceptions.
1: Yeah. Um, and uh, Mike, you found sort of, a uh, Wikipedia or the Wikipedia article on blue, broken plurals and that has a nice little chart. Yeah. And,
2: and there are so many kinds of them. It's a nightmare yes. <laughs> because you have to memorize yeah, those that's,
0: things. Yeah. That's the, one the, thing that when uh, I was <laughs> thinking about doing a, a con line with some of these and the thing is that I'm like, Oh, well, wait a minute. If I just have, you know, consonant, vi- consonant A, consonant A. A consonant, u be the plural. That's easy. But obviously it's never that easy if you're going for a natural, really, you know, naturalist approach. Right. As you can see on this table, there are more than I have fingers, toes, and, you know, digits to count with.
1: The,
2: the funny yeah, thing if- about the broken plurals is it looks like historically they started uh-huh. off their life not as plurals per se, but as a kind of derivational process producing collective nouns. The reason oh, we, that's interesting. The reason we know this is true is because broken plural nouns agree with feminine singular verbs,
0: which sounds really uh. bizarre but <laughs> right but
1: once
2: you know the historical background, it makes a little bit more sense
1: uh, and and uh, I, I, I recommend people look at this chart because there's lots of lots of many to one conversions and mm-hmm. it's not like there's one plural form. there's there's a bunch of different broken plural patterns. Yep. I think this kind of situation is one where you might want to go look at sort of a uh, a paradigm morphology sort of thing when you're trying to construct this. Um, and I'm linking I'm linking to uh, David Peterson's paper in Fiat Lingua that gives sort of a an introduction to uh, um, to uh, more of a paradigm morphology type way of constructing languages. Um, um, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it, sorry, it, it it also deals with affixes and such, too.
0: Um, what I was going to say is looking at this patterns in Arabic table, um, it's also interesting to see that it's not, like you were saying, it's not just one-to-one. Sometimes the same singular form, like consonant, a consonant, consonant, can have different uh, plural forms. So it's not always just, you know, as simple as this is how it just funnels in. Mm-hmm. It may require, mm-hmm. you know, memorization or even just different forms depending upon which which uh, shade of meaning or whatever of the verb you're using or word, noun, whatever. Learning right. Arabic
1: takes lots of memorizing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's true of a lot of languages, but yes, lots of memorizing. A, it takes
2: from... more memorizing.
1: Yeah, uh, um, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on a little bit since we don't want to spend the sort of in the entire thing working on um looking at arabic uh there's more than just sort of the internal uh stem changes one one particular thing that it, you can find is what's called a disfix, which mm-hmm. it's sort of a a weird term it's sort of like oh, we have affixes let's call this a disfix, but it's like you remove something to change the meaning instead of add, adding something. And sort of the, the traditional example of this, uh, for uh, that, uh, you'll, you'll hear in linguistics courses is French where, uh, for example, it's, it's common with, uh, um, feminine, masculine, feminine, um, distinction. You have feminine is petite, masculine, petit. uh, good is bon or bon um, and that uh, the there's there's a little bit more going on in terms of phonological rules uh francaise is the feminine francais is masculine what you get sort of is basically you end up having to conclude that the masculine is formed by deleting something from the feminine in this particular case and there's singulars and plurals that do this kind of thing too
2: right and again. Fortunately, in the case of French, we have all of the history leading up to it, and so we know what's really going on is the loss of final consonants.
1: Right. In and in it, it, it's it's Right. And it, it's really easy to make that in a conlang using historical derivation sort of tactics because of that, because you know how this sort of thing ends up happening is you delete something off the end or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, moving into... Uh, there's all sorts of things you can, you can basically just change do any sort of change. Uh, there's places where you can have tone changes or different se- super segmental features changing. Sure.
2: sure. Um, so in no which is a Nubian language, um, when mm-hmm. a word, when a noun becomes the first element of a compound, all of its high tones are changed to low. Uh huh.
1: Right. Yeah. That is an example that's, of something that could happen. Yeah. Um, I've heard one. For Chinese, but I have my doubts as to whether it's productive. There was, there was a uh, a professor told me that there are certain like places where changing the tone to fourth tone makes it a noun. and An example was like shu means to count and shu means number. Hmm. But I don't know if that's like currently productive. It may be like some weird thing that happened in old Chinese or Middle Chinese that's. That's like got a ghost in, in the current time or something. Right. That seems more likely to me, but I would need to see data. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was, when I was wandering around reading some of these articles, I don't remember which one it was. I was trying to find it just now, but, um, it mentioned with the putting of stress, where you shifting the stress, like in English, we have record and record or, um, refuse and refuse. Like, is that, do you think also, um, in the same sort of the shifting of stress family? Uh, I don't know if they just kind of turned out that way.
2: No. That's kind of weird. Because I think, I think I that mean, could lead to things that look like non-concandidate morphology if vowels start behaving strangely under different, um, accent circumstances, which absolutely happens in Arabic and especially Hebrew. But in the normal course of things, I wouldn't think so.
0: I thought I heard uh, somewhere that English usually, like, um, for, for like, uh, record, present, uh, refuse that stress being on the second syllable or on the last syllable there. I don't know if that was just, you know, an idea it's, or if that's just, you know, see, reflective of a few cases, not necessarily a whole system.
1: It's, it's an interesting thing, but I don't know if it's the best example. It's not necessarily clear. There are mm-hmm. people who have, there are people who have claimed that basically the stress placement rules in English are sensitive to word class and that it's like purely like, the phonology somehow reading something from the the lexicon and just and and using that so it's hard to say whether that's really that's morphology or like what the exactly is going on there but stress changes could certainly be i think used in sort of a non concatenative morphology sort of way you know having some sort of a regular stress change that changes changes some aspect And you could see it coming from historical things too, because you could have, uh, you know, in the past there was an affix that caused stress to shift, and then that affix is gone, but the stress is still shifting. Silence. Yeah, because George has gotten stuck. (laughs) 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 But uh, um, those are a lot of your main things. Um. Uh, William, you p- had uh, something, uh, the uh, talking about consonant grades. Yes, consonant gradation is really interesting. Um, it's most known
2: in the Uralic languages, especially everyone's favorite Finnish,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, where various historical processes result in differences between quote unquote strong and so called weak consonants. Um, mm-hmm. What's really interesting about these is that they're not simply happening at right next to it's not like um morpheme boundaries are causing this change um mm-hmm. so i'm trying to think about a good example so in the i think it's the genitive right so i've got a page here where you've got um a bunch of examples with um nouns some of them have the partitive endings and the others have the genitive suffix which is basically just so you'll have a word like lika which means dirt. The K is mm. deleted when in the genitive. So it becomes lian. Makua mm. taste becomes mu, uh, maun. Um, rakua, mm. um, whole becomes raun. Um, and a bunch of other examples. Um, it gets really fun because this is very schematic. And what happens is that over time, different kinds of processes have happened. So where there used to be sounds. So like lika, which I gave before. Um, used to turn that k into a voiced velar fricative, so instead of Leon, it was Ligan, but that sound went away in, in the last few centuries. Um, uh, Ripa became Rivan, um, and this, I'm guessing, has something to do with stress or syllable weight effects. Right, the n is yeah. not hitting any of these consonants; it's still insulated. They're still kept apart by a vowel. Um, but the, the consonant, the final consonant of the stem is either turning from a double consonant to a single or from a single into various things, um, due just as a result of different, um, case marking, um, mm-hmm. which we don't have all of the details in the background for what was going on there. Um, but it persists to this day in what looks like non-concatenative morphology.
1: Right. And this sort of thing can like, you can, you can end up with like something arising out of sound changes and then spreading by analogy to even other yeah, sure. similar roots sure. and stuff like that. It, it all is possible. Um, the, a couple things.
2: What? I was going to say the Uto Aztecan languages also have vestiges of, um, mm-hmm. constant gradation, um, which presents mm-hmm. itself differently in different uh, languages.
1: Right. Um,
0: no, that's not of- like lenition or anything, right? They're actually grades of it. Um. Well, again, it really looks like
2: nasals and aspirated consonants were involved, or not, not aspirated consonants. Pre-aspiration was involved, resulting in various kinds of changes. So historically, it sure seems like normal phonological processes were going on, but over time, mm. those patterns became fossilized into things that look like non-concatenative morphology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What did you, I, I'm trying to remember. We, I had just finished talking about, um, Utoe's Tekken, and I said, George, what do you have to say? And then I heard nothing.
1: Oh, no, I, um, so you were talking about Utoaz Tekken, uh, Mike. I had uh, mentioned uh, Lenition. Uh, yeah.
2: Yes. And I was explaining how it, it, right. It looks like Lenition might have been involved historically, um, but the, the process was mm. sort of generalized into non-concatenative
1: looking things. Right. Lination well, is is mainly like a phonological process. Right. But yeah. then that's the what phonological I said, I think process has become, yeah, phonological process has then become morphology in the future.
0: Yes. Sometime. Just so you guys know, you you sound very much a lot flatter than earlier. <laughs> like there's not as much depth in your voices. So I don't know what that means, but I wanted to just let you know that's what I hear. I do too.
1: Okay. Well, um, I don't know what we can do about that. Right. Um.
0: On but, the show and
1: yeah, let's, let's, let's get on with it. So we talked a lot about the sort of non-conceptive morphology. We, you're, you started recording, right? Yeah. William? Yes. Okay. We talked a lot about this. Uh, a couple of things that I want to mention is sort of, I consider infixing and reduplication to be sort of edge cases of non-conceptive morphology. You can, in many cases, think of reduplication as like adding an affix that's copying part of it. That's, that's actually how some people analyze it. I don't know if that's really the best way to analyze it though. Um, and infixing, it's like the positioning of an inf- infix is usually phonological, but it is technically you're putting something inside the stem. So it is non-concatenative, but it's, it isn't like it. It is like an affix. Right. So I don't know. Yeah. It's, I, Really, honestly, you can just say it's not concaptive for our purposes, because, you know, when you're creating a codline, you don't need to, like, rigidly divide and figure out these things. Exactly, exactly. Um, one thing that I found that I figured out, that I was looking at was, um, so in sign languages, they have some kinds of morphology that you could consider Non-concatenative. They're called like simultaneous morphology is the term that I saw. And these mm-hmm. are things like some some uh, verbs in most uh, sign languages will have some sort of inflection um, uh, agreement that involves the the places. So, like mm-hmm. uh, I think in ASL, the to to give you can either You can start it, where you start it, and where you end it are the subject and the object.
0: Yep. Shows some on that um, site that I just just sent there. Um, There's actually some pictures on it, too. They called it, this one site says directionality, and it has a picture (laughs) of where if you say, he gave it to me, you bring your hand from away to you, towards you. And then if you want to say, I gave it to him, you just do it from close to you to towards wherever you've identified him to be.
1: Yeah. And that's the, the most salient thing to me that I, that I understand. But um, I found a paper um, that uh, you'll have to sort of wade through this. It's a, a paper by Aronoff, May, Mayer and uh, Sandler that uh, talks about this more theoretically. But they give examples of that type of thing. And I think they give examples of a few other sorts of um what they're calling simultaneous morphology in in signed languages. I just thought it would be an interesting thing to to bring up yeah. for people who are possibly making signed languages, signed conlangs.
0: There are also some interesting things with like um with de- with like month for example. If you do it with the with one hand step, it could be one month. Versus where with with two with a hand shape that means two, it could be two months or three months. And it's kind of yeah. similar to a non-candidate morphology where you insert the Morpheme into the word, and uh, you get that you know one kind of mm-hmm. one kind of notion in a single sign.
1: Hmm. William, you are silent.
2: Yeah, I was just going to mention I ran across an interesting thing in um, Luhoda has an interesting. They call it sound symbolism, but it sure looks to me like an edge case for non-concatenative morphology, where they use um, point of articulation movement to indicate intensity. Um, oh. So, for example, um, we have sota, it's clear, shota, it's smoky, chota, it's gray. So you went from mm. s to sh to ch. And then another one which I enjoyed <laughs> very much is z, it is yellow, g, it is tawny, ri, it is brown. Now that's interesting. Yes. Anyway, the point is you have, again, consonants far away from any existing morphing being changed to modify, in this case, um, a degree of a scale.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, um, and, and these are actual lexical, um, well, they're verbs. I mean, they're adjectives in English, but they're verbs in Lakota. That um, This is not the same as the sort of uh, sound symbolism patterns you might get in idiophones.
1: Right. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't really, well, um, I don't know. I, it doesn't look like any kind of sound symbolism to me. It's sort of just... <laughs> But, you know, it's hard to say. It's, um, unless you're just saying, like, front is less and then back is more. But I don't know. That that seems like a stretch to me. Okay. Mm.
0: Is it an isolation like that one word? Or could it have been some sort of phonolo- something phonologically having a softening effect? Uh, like if there were some um, affix? I don't know. Maybe. I'm trying to figure out what sort of... Well,
2: yeah, I mean, that's it could have started off once where that was the case. And then somebody ran with the idea. And a few thousand yeah. years later, you have a bunch of these things.
1: Yeah, I can see some sort of prefix causing some biological change that started it off. Um, I'd have to look at sort of, um, do you have a link for this? It'd be interesting to see more examples. Um, I have a giant book. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll borrow your book. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm not saying, I don't know. Did we, did we have any other, um, Things to talk about there. I think we went through all the things that we listed. Um,
0: yeah. um, I just thought of something else that I found. Um, you were, well, when well, you were mentioning infixes, that kind of clicked in my head. And not the, speaking of conlangs, uh, verbs, don't, is that non-concatenative morphology going on? I guess if you count
2: well, infixes you as non-concatenative, then yes. Right. It goes on in abundance, in fact. Lots of infixes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, this, um,
2: I mean, we, we've, we've called this non-concatenative morphology and from the standpoint of conlanging, um, coming up, you know, doing a little bit to break us out of our habit of agglutination is useful, but I'm not sure that it's in the world of theory necessarily useful to think that non-concatenative morphology is notable or that it is especially useful to say this is non-concatenative. Um, it's just a description mm-hmm. of a particular kind of morphology that is the result of um, long-running phonological processes that are completely normal in every mm-hmm. other way.
1: Well, I think, yeah, I think uh, honestly, you know, if we were going to go into theory, we could, we could, we could talk endlessly about, you know, um, about this this sort of thing. I think the non-concatenative morphology is maybe not necessarily like from theory. You try to want to. Want to try to sort of reduce things as much as I can to like one sort of basic thing that's causing all morphologies to occur, right? But so these distinctions, I think, are more in line with sort of drawing to atten- our attention to things that sort of seem to provide evidence against the standard, the the standard of um, the the standard uh morpheme theory anyway. It's not so much mm, it's it's it whether or not it's a useful term is not something we were will answer here anyway.
0: Yeah. Uh, I had a quick question. Um mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I, I do not want to interrupt. Um I was gonna say if you know like we mentioned earlier you don't want to go crazy and you know go all in every you know everything is non competitive. Now on the other end, if you have a language where you haven't used anything that's non competitive, could is it very naturalistic, or is it very likely that a language would only have, say, one affix or two affixes that gets, that aren't non-competitive, or one or two, um, like to make the plural, you use non-competitive, but nowhere else does that occur. Is that common? Certainly common in the Germanic
2: languages. Um,
0: I mean, that's a yeah. Jewish, Um,
2: all of these things are possibilities. My suspicion is, although I've not, you know, done a study or seen a survey, um, is that once again, we're talking about a scale where a particular language mm-hmm. can be really high on the concatenative scale, a language might be really high on the non-concatenative scale with every possibility in between.
1: Right. Um, I don't think that there would be any, any language that's purely non-concatenative. It, it, at least, it, you, I think it would be likely that there would be some form of compounding occurring somewhere. But... Yeah. Uh, a language is completely concatenative, but that doesn't strike me as unusual.
0: Right. Uh, I was just thinking if someone wants to experiment with it, you could, you know, I'm, you don't have to be, you know, daunted by the thought, oh, well, if I use one non concatenative um, mechanism, then I need to use it pervasively throughout the no. language 100% no, no, no. of the time. No, no, and no. That's not the case.
1: And, I mean, it needs and to be. That's one of the... Go ahead, George. Well, uh, um, it's a system, but, linguistic systems are complicated and there's there's all sorts of cases where so i mean let's just look at what english has we have some verbs that inflect non-concatenatively and plenty of verbs that just that have normal the the normal fuse, fusional suffixes um uh in other uh and in a lot of languages i think you'll find you know you'll have some some portions that are non-concatenative and some portions that are concatenative, even with the broken plurals. Yes, the patterns are all non-concatenative, but you see this, um, this ma prefix occurring in a couple of them. It's hard to say whether that's just like, maybe you could just say that's just part of the, the pattern, or you could say that's a prefix plus a pattern. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that that will get into which theory. Or you prefer, which we don't really need to deal with in convain. Yeah.
2: Yeah, but I mean, if you want to add one or two bits of something, quote unquote,
0: non So yeah, that's all I was saying.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Then it just needs to be principled in some way. I mean, it doesn't have to be, right? To right. Me. If you're not doing historical, if you're not aiming at historical accuracy, then it doesn't matter. But if it does, you just need to think about what sort of phonological circumstances might have led to this pattern and then how that pattern was generalized across an entire class of
1: words or circumstances. And the historical system can help you out too because um like um and th- a little bit of this is talked about uh in, uh David David uh talked a little bit about this in his, in his down with Morphemes talk in his paper that I'm going to link to is that the same sort of historical challenge sound changes might have you know come up with uh, a small bit of non-concatenative morphology in one one place and in a small bit in a completely other place just like like, you know there are different processes actually in english but some of them have some relationship with where you have the the um the the strong verbs and you have the irregular plurals some in some places the same occurring in both places. Yeah. That just got really convoluted didn't it.
0: Yeah, a little bit, <laughs> a little bit, but yeah, yeah I mean, the, but things interact. The, I think it's good to note that this is just one mechanism and it's not necessarily like saying you have to go down the concatenative route or the non-concatenative route.
1: Well, it's like a lot of the typological things that we've said here is that no language is completely one or the other. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of things like, you know, uh, we've talked about um, what synthetic and analytic languages and, you know, you know, even, you know, if you go synthetic and analytic, synthetic is uh, tend to, you know, make words out of smaller parts and have, you know, many affixes versus very, very few sort of affixes. Even languages that we think are mostly analytic, like Chinese is think, thought of as mostly analytic, mostly isolating. It has one or two little things that seem to be a bit more synthetic. You know, it has a couple of suffixes and things like that. Um, grammatical mm. suffixes and such. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's, you know, a natural language. And a lot of what we talk about in the show is trying to make a naturalistic language. So, Trying to imitate what natural languages do in a natural language, you're not going to have a perfect anything, one or the other. You're it's going to have true. a perfect anything for, for anything. <laughs> so it's all sort of mixed up in a giant pile of thousands of years of historical changes and all this kind of thing. And lazy
2: teenagers. I think <laughs> not learning the language properly.
1: Sorry, I'm just, just joking. Yes. Well, I don't know that 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 may be part of what drives it uh, but yeah in general you know languages you know at least you know some of the the uh the some linguists that i know would argue with me but natural languages are messy and if we're going to make a naturalistic conlang, it's got to be a little bit messy but in a principled way yeah you know if you derive it from historical changes then you will see that the same historical changes giving you different sorts of irregularities and non-cognitive morphology and all that kind of thing in different places from the same rule. And that's, that's where you end up getting your messiness from. Yep.
2: Anything else? I think we've covered this topic pretty thoroughly. I think mm-hmm. we did really at well. Least, I think we showed least, a lot it, of different things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At least for the context of the show, right? We, it's not
1: a book on non-cognitive morphology. <laughs> right. This is not a, it's not a book, but. I think we, we, we gave enough stuff to give people a little bit of inspiration. And that's a, that's a good, good thing to have. Yeah. So, uh, how about we call this a show then? All right. All right. Uh, so, um, William and Mike, I never try to like promote things. Uh, so you can reach you me at, uh, uh, GA Corley on Twitter or, or Con Langry on Twitter. And, you know, we have our Facebook and our Google Plus and stuff that, well, I mentioned that at the end of the show anyway. It's a <laughs> pre-recorded. But w- w- William, you have a Twitter, Twitter handle you've had for a while now, right?
2: Yes, William Blathers, WM Blathers.
1: Right. Uh, and Mike, do you have anything online that, that you would want to promote?
0: Well, I, I have, I had Twitter and I was trying to use it to start with a, you know, commenting every day, like, I um, mean, maybe like just kind of in there tweet in that conlang and I may revive that um, I'll be sure to make sure I can draw that up the problem was that I had too many languages going and it's gonna come with one so the short answer is no I don't at the moment but um, I am working on it
1: yeah. so. and we all have our various websites but um, William you are acting and I have I, I have not updated my my ga in a very long time <laughs>
0: Um, and I have a WordPress but, that also has not updated in forever.
1: Yeah. Uh, anyway, but all that sort of aside, I'm going to say happy Langry. Thank you for listening to Con ConLangery. You can find our archives and show notes at ConLangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to ConLangery at gmail.com. To submit a Conlang or Natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our contribute page for details. Web space for Conlangry is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device.